we'll get started. Let me open this up in prayer, and then we can begin. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for uh, your goodness, Lord. We thank you for saving us. We thank you that we have been given the right to be your children, Lord, uh, through the saving work of your Son, Lord, I pray right now, Lord, that, that we'll be sensitive to your spirit as we look into your word. Lord, as we uh, strive to understand it the best that we possibly can, Lord, um, I just pray that you will uh, be with us all, um, be working in all of our hearts and minds as we um, rightly divide the word of truth, Lord. We love you, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. All right. Uh, this evening, for me at least, uh, seems a little bit slower. So I feel like I need to like, be a little bit more perky and try to give myself a little bit more energy. Um, I'm not sure what you guys are like tonight, so hopefully you all don't fall asleep. Um, I mean, this past week has been a little bit busy with Rec Weekend and a lot of other things going on. I see Lonnie yawning right when I was talking. <laughs> so I think he's proving the point where it's a little tiring tonight. Uh, but that does not mean we're going through something that is tiring. We are going through uh, a fun subject on the epistles tonight. Uh, and I think the epistles, the letters in the New Testament, are uh, some of the most fun things to study uh, because it's through a lot of the letters, especially Paul's letters in the New Testament, where we get a lot of doctrine, a lot of Christian teaching of what Christians are supposed to believe in. Um, the things about who God is, which is incredibly exciting, and it influences then the way we should live as Christians. So there's a lot of cool things uh, in this specific study tonight. Uh, you can see on your note sheet, we're still looking at the New Testament, so New Testament uh, but we're looking specifically at the epistles, right? Last week, we looked at the Gospels. This week um, are the epistles. Next time we meet, we'll be looking at Acts, specifically, just that one book. And also, just a note, we are not going to be meeting for the next two weeks. Uh, next week, we're off, and the week after that, we're also off. And so then it'll be three weeks out then when we will be back uh, looking, getting back in the book of Acts. So just be aware of that. Uh, so, the epistles. Um, if you guys had to pick a favorite book in the New Testament, what, what are some of the books? What would they be? Colossians. Colossians. Ephesians. And Ephesians. And Hebrews. And Hebrews. Anyone else? I like Philippians and First Thessalonians. The Philippians and First Thessalonians. Are you all deliberately picking epistles, or is it just working out that way? I mean, those are ones that's the ones that I mentioned are ones that speak specifically to where I'm at. Okay. At different phases of life, it was the letters to Timothy, mm -hmm. um, especially as an early believer. Yeah. Yeah. So this is just really proving the point, right, that these letters are some of our favorite books in the New Testament. Uh, they're very devotional uh, for us personally as we grow in our faith. Uh, they just uh, help us out a whole lot through different situations in life. Um, so let's look at the first section on your note sheet, an overview of the New Testament letters. Le letters, epistles, they're one and the same in what they mean, right? Uh, there are two characteristics I want to point out when it comes to New Testament letters. Uh, these may be common sense, but I also just want to um, explicitly state them. Uh, these letters were carefully written and delivered. So when I say carefully written, many of these letters, uh, the author weren't, wasn't normally the one who actually wrote the letters. Uh, back then, in these ancient letters, you'd have a scribe, a professional scribe or secretary that would write down the letter for you. So this was a professional endeavor, uh, writing down uh, the letter for you. However, 
these letters do have still the personal touch from the author, obviously, um, because many times when we get to the end of a letter, uh, the author it's, itself, so many times Paul himself would write the concluding marks. Uh, so you would have a scribe write down the majority of the letter, uh, and then you would have your concluding thoughts or concluding remarks at the end of the letter, um, a lot of times written by the author himself. And we see uh, this in several different Pauline epistles where Paul says, I'm writing these words with my own hands, uh, referring to like the very concluding remarks of the letter. So uh, they were carefully written and they were delivered. You see a lot of different individuals uh, delivering these letters uh, during the New Testament era, right? A lot of trusted individuals. And then the other characteristic I want to point out is that these letters were intended for Christian communities, right? Many of these letters weren't just specifically for one individual, uh, but many of these New Testament letters were written for the Christian community. So once a uh, letter is delivered, it would be read out loud for everyone listening. Um, and many times these letters would be read multiple times. Uh, it wasn't just like a one-time thing, and then you wouldn't just pass the letter off to someone else and just have a, um, a random family in the congregation take it home and keep it themselves. It would be kept in a safe place uh, because letters were very valuable. Um, but everyone were able, was still able to enjoy them by coming and hearing them read out loud. So those are just a few characteristics I wanted to quickly point out on the New Testament letters. Uh, as you can see on your note sheet, we have Pauline epistles and general epistles. What are the difference between those two different types of epistles? The ones Paul wrote yes. and the others. Yes, so very straightforward, right? Uh, Pauline epistles are the letters that Paul wrote you can see he wrote a lot on that chart that's right on in the front of your note sheet. Um, these are named after the recipient of the letter. So you can see all the different names of these letters. Uh, they're named after those who received the letter. But then the other ones, general epistles, consist of the other ones that were not written by Paul. And they are actually named after the author so it's, it's different, right? The general epistles are named after the author who wrote the letter, and the Pauline epistles are not named after the author because it would all just be Paul 1, Paul 2, Paul 3. Can you imagine how much it would be? Uh, but they're named after the recipients. So th that's a little bit of a difference there. What about Hebrews? Except for Hebrews, yes. Hebrews is the exception uh, for the general epistles. Uh, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. That's why there's a question mark. Uh, but it was written to the Hebrews, right? So Hebrews is the exception. It's a good, good uh, note, Lonnie. So you could see the chart there, right? Who wrote what book? Uh, these different books that are considered the epistles of the New Testament. All right, so that's a quick overview. Um, next, uh, form, the form of the New Testament letters. It's very straightforward, right? We have introduction, body, conclusion. Um, some people might try to do different subcategories within that, which is fine. Uh, but your basic layout, like you do for most things, is introduction, body, conclusion. And you could see here, uh, introduction includes name of author, name of recipients, normally a greeting. It could also be uh, introductory type of prayer. Uh, many times in the New Testament. Uh, you could see body, uh, depending on the type of letter, may include so many different types of things, and you can see that listed here. And then conclusion, there's a lot of different components that, ha that do make up different conclusions of letters in the New Testament. And these are just some examples that you can look at if you care to. You can follow the, the passage that's listed in the parentheses and see how um, these conclusions are laid out. Um, but we don't need to necessarily spend a whole lot of time here. Um, so these are just the forms, the different components of 
letters. All right. Uh, this section and the next section is where we're going to be spending the majority of the time and where I want us to have uh, most discussion and interaction with is interpreting letters. Right? Um, how to interpret New Testament letters. Uh, there, this is a five-step process, and this five-step process that's laid out in your note sheet is actually something that we have been working through these, uh, for a while. These five steps shouldn't be new. If you have um, been a part of this study uh, this whole semester, hopefully these don't uh, uh, look brand new to you. I know Pastor Sam actually went through these, um, I think most recently when he was teaching on applying scripture before we started looking at the specific genres. Uh, so you could see how to interpret New Testament letters. We're first going to talk about these steps, what's all included in these steps to remind us. Like I said, we've talked about this before. And then after that, we're going to apply these steps onto a specific passage. So you can see we'll be applying it specifically to Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, so if you want, you could start turning your Bibles there, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Uh, but we're not going to be jumping in just yet because we're going to first talk about these specific steps. All right. Um, step number one. On page two on your note sheet, on the very top. Grasp the text in their town. Uh, do you all remember this analogy that's, that we have been given, right? That we've been giving where there's um, a town on one side of a river and a town on another side, on the other side. The town on one side is the biblical audience's town uh, looking at the text in their specific context and try and figure out what that town looks like. And then you have a principalizing bridge that's crossing over a river. And then the town on this side uh, is our town, our specific context. And that's kind of the analogy this five-step process works through. So we'll see that. So the first step is to grasp the text in their town, to observe what their town looks like. So the main question you can see on your note sheet asks, what did the text mean to the biblical audience? This is what you should be asking when you look at any, any text, really, within Scripture. Right? These are five steps you could apply to any text. Um, who can tell me what are some steps that you should be doing within uh, number one? Think about some of the things we've talked about so far, uh, not just tonight, but this whole semester. What do you think would be included in step number one? Read and, and understand the context. Read and understand the context, right? Uh, we have the historical cultural context. This is where you would want to study more into that to understand their town, right? But then also we have the literary context, uh, looking at the text itself, what did the author mean, intend to say in the way he said it within the, uh, the text, right? Looking at the uh, specific context, uh, literary context at the verse itself, and then looking at the surrounding context as well. Why did he use the word to use? Uh, those sort of things, right? Um, so, but before we get into that, I would say whenever you're looking at a specific text, the very first thing you want to do, so um, whatever it may be, whatever, the very first thing you want to do is read the entire letter first. All right, we're talking about the epistles. So read the entire letter first, from start to finish. Um, because a letter is meant to be read in one sit sitting, right? You don't receive a letter from a friend. Say it's several pages long. You just don't read um, a paragraph one day, and then you get to the next paragraph the next day, next paragraph the following day, and just break it up like that. Or if you're more ambitious, you just don't read one page one day, and the next page the next day, right? You read the entire letter from start to finish. Uh, so that's an important uh, way 
to study these epistles. Um, I mean, sometimes these epistles are long, uh, and so it could take a little while. Um, especially the book of Hebrews is um, a good example of a longer one. Uh, in a study school class that I taught several years ago, we were going through the book of Galatians. And uh, the very last day in the book of Galatians, all we did was I read the entire book out loud from start to finish um, to try to see uh, what we could grasp but from just seeing the flow of the whole argument of the whole, of the whole book. Uh, and so that's the very first thing we should be doing. Within step one, grasp the text in your town. What did the text mean to the biblical audience? You should just read the entirety of the book, even if you just want to zone in on maybe one or two verses of what you're teaching. Uh, just read the entirety of the book, which will then help you a lot with the literary context, right? Uh, but then also we want to reconstruct the historical cultural context. All of those things are included in step number one. All right, on page two, number two, the second step is measure the width of the river to cross, right? Again, this shouldn't be new information. Um, we've talked about this. And the question that corresponds with this, what are the differences between the biblical audience and us? Um, so what would be some of the things that you would do in this step? What was that? He's related to them for a reason. And if we can determine what the reason is, whether, whether it's a chastising for not doing what they're supposed to be doing, or whether it's praise for doing what they are doing, we need to read what he means by which way and mm. why. Yeah, definitely. And so uh, this second step is part of the process to get there, right? of why is the author saying the things he is saying. Um, so first step, we're trying to understand their context, right? Um, looking at what the text is saying itself. But the, the second part, what we're on right now, is we're seeing the differences between their town, if we're continuing the analogy, and then our town. Uh, so when it comes to New Testament letters, uh, we're measure, measuring the width of that river that separates us. Uh, when it comes to New Testament letters, there's not that much of a difference. Um, these letters are written to New Testament believers. We are New Testament believers, so there's a lot of similarities. Um, I mean, a difference can be something as simple as language, right? So that would be that would make the river a little wider. That's something that's different between us. Um, geography, that's something that's different between us. Um, culture, obviously, and that's why we look at the historical cultural context is different between us. Um, all these different things could be differences, or are differences, I should say, uh, between us uh, that we at least need to make note of. Uh, situation may be different between us, uh, we'll be looking at, like I said, Hebrews chapter 12 in a little bit, and we'll be looking at the differences between um, the original, original recipients of the book of Hebrews and us, and we'll be making note of, of those things um, so that we can not misapply uh, the application of the text itself. Um, because we need, to we need to make note of their situation to make sure it's, we're applying it to the same situation for, for us today. So this is like every time you read, like, like you're going to teach it or you're just trying to study it yourself. You first want to read the whole text, find out what's going on, historical context, right? Yeah. And then you actually like go through and like note what's different between then and now? Like, so like, so At least make personal note of it. And a lot of times uh, these steps could fall in line 
step two could uh, fall in line with step one as well. So a lot of times you are noticing these differences as you are doing step one. As you're looking at the, the town that the original audience lived in, figuring out what their context is, a lot of times you're automatically making notes of the differences, right? Um, but we at least need to acknowledge that they're there, that uh, their situation isn't the exact same situation at all times as your situation is in your context that you're going through um, in the very moment. Um, but yeah, you're not necessarily always making a long list similar similarities and differences for every single thing. Right, you're just making note of it. Uh, third, second step is very short, and I don't think we would spend a lot of time on it. Um, third step, this is one of the more difficult steps, right? It's cross the principalizing bridge. Um, the question is, what are the theological principles in this text? Right, so what, how could we take this original uh, context, this, the original town that we are observing, and carry it over to our town. Um, if we don't cross the bridge over the differences, right, then we could read history, but it won't affect anything for us. We're not ever going to be able to make an application from it. Um, we need to build a theological principalizing bridge. Uh, so recognizing what that is can be difficult. I mean, there could be multiple different types of principalizing, theological principalizing bridges. So an example, when you listen to a sermon, and it's a three-point sermon, sometimes, at least this is how I preach, I have a main idea or a big idea, and then there's three points underneath that, Right? Uh, that big main idea many times is a uh, principalizing bridge for that text that's being taught. What is the main idea uh, that transcends time and culture, right? That we are able to apply that's still true for us today. Um, so when it comes to this principalizing bridge, uh, some things we need to be careful of. This principle should be reflected in the biblical text, obviously, right? That's number one. This principle should be timeless and not to, tied to a specific situation, right? It needs to be timeless so it could apply for us again today and not just tied to their specific situation so that we could also apply it to our situation. Um, this principle should not be culturally bound, right? So we could again apply it for us today. Uh, the principle should be consistent with the teaching of the rest of Scripture, obviously, right? It can't contradict um, what a passage says in another part of Scripture, even though it might seem like it would be a good principalizing bridge for that specific text that you're looking at. And then uh, the last one, characteristic of the principalizing bridge, is that the principle should be relevant to both the biblical and contemporary audience, Right? It ties both towns together, the original audience's town and then us, the contemporary audience. Um, so you can see why this might be a more difficult task, but it's only done after you observe the original town, right? After you do the work of creating, the, of seeing the context, um, trying to understand what the text meant, uh, through the lens of the original audience and then pulling out the main theological principles that are being taught that can be timeless, right? Um, that are not bound by culture, all of these things that we could, that are still true for us today. Does that make sense so far? All right. Um, and then fourthly, consult the biblical map. Uh, and this is just, again, a step that you do really within step three is you are just making sure it doesn't contradict any other part of scripture. Uh, how does your theological principle, so after you define this theological principle bridge, right, 
how does it fit with the rest of the Bible? Um, and again, this is kind of what I said earlier, just make sure it doesn't contradict with anything. Um, because there can be passages where you create a theological principle for one passage, and then it could seem very contrary, contradictory to a different passage in Scripture. So you just need to be aware of that. Um, let's have an example of that. Does someone want to turn to Galatians 2.16 for us? Someone turn to Galatians 2.16. Actually, I guess we all could turn there. Keep your finger in Hebrews, uh, since we will be in Hebrews chapter 12, like I said, in a little bit. But turn to Galatians. And this will just give a quick example of how you may unintentionally create a theological principle that may be... Uh, not aligned with another passage in Scripture. So, are you all there in Galatians? All right, Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. And I know we're skipping a lot of steps because we're not reading the entire book first. We're not necessarily going to be looking at different commentaries and things like that in order to try to understand the historical context and, and things like that. But look at verse 16. It says, actually, we'll read verse 15 because it kind of flows into verse 16. Uh, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law no one will be justified right so it repeats the same thing multiple different ways near the end of or in verse 16 here uh, so if you were to summarize or try to uh, just state a simple um, theological principle of specifically verse 16 um, what what is something we could come up with? Justified by faith, not by the law. Okay, we're justified by faith and not by the law. Uh, and another characteristic of a theological principle we want to create is we want to make it general enough, right, so it doesn't contradict with other parts of Scripture, right? Justified by faith and not by the law. It repeats that multiple times here, right? Is everyone okay with that one? All right. And some of you may know where I'm going with this. Uh, turn to the book of James. Um, James chapter 2, verse 24. So we have to make sure whatever theological principle we come up with doesn't contradict uh, with any other parts of Scripture. So, James chapter 2, verse 24 says, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. All right. So, what we would need to do really is, again, read the entire book of James, right? Look at the context, look at the literary context. Um, and work through those processes in order to build then a theological principle for the book of James. And what we would need to do is make the theological principle uh, not incredibly very uh, nuanced. I mean, there's a time and place for us to very much nuance things, right? Uh, so we're very precise in our language. But then other times as well, uh, we need to leave room for what James is saying right here uh, in chapter 2, verse 24, to also be 100% true, right? Because Scripture doesn't contradict each other. Once we do the work of literary context, historical context, all of these things. Um, so that's um, 
an, an obvious example, I think, that many people bring up and we have to work through, well, how do these things work hand in hand with each other? Um, so I think just speakly, uh, quickly speaking to this example, right, uh, James is showing how faith, that the faith that we're saved by is not faith that is alone absent from works, right? Uh, the faith that we're saved by uh, works comes out of it. Um, there's the fruit of the Spirit that comes from our faith. Um, and if you had, say you have faith in Jesus Christ and it doesn't change your life and the way you live, then it's probably not saving faith, genuine saving faith, right? So those are some of the ways that we would talk about how these things, these passages don't contradict with each other. Um, all right, so that's step four. Uh, step five, the last step, right? Grasp the text then in our town. So now we're over the bridge, um, over the river. Uh, Grasp the text in our town. So this is where the application comes in. How should individual Christians today live out the theological principles? So you take the main idea, the theological principle that you came up with, um, and then you make an application from it in our specific context. Uh, So some of the steps that you would do under this fifth step is you observe the theological principles and the biblical in the biblical text, um, and you see how it addresses the original situation, and then you identify the key elements that are present in the intersection between the principle and the situation. So you take the principle, right, and you look at what situation you're going through or what you want to apply to the situation, and you see the interaction Uh, the intersection between the two, I should say, and you look at those key elements uh, that exist within this intersection, and we will talk more about this. I know um, this sounds kind of technical, and I know this is what we were learning as Pastor Sam was teaching. Uh, And then also within step five, then after that, you search for the situation in our lives or our world that contains all of the key elements that you see. And then third, Uh, we need to make our application specific by creating real-world scenarios that are faithful to the meaning of the text and relevant to us today, to the contemporary audience. All right, so now we're going to try to take these steps and apply it to Hebrews chapter 12. All right, so turn back to Hebrews chapter 12 if you have moved Uh, your place, as I have, unfortunately. Um, All right. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. So look at your note sheet. What did the text mean to the biblical audience? Step number one. Question, what do you do first? Read all of Hebrews. Do you first do? Yeah, read the entire book. That's a good answer. Um, It'll take a little while. Preferably try to uh, read it in one sitting. Um, If you can't, I mean, obviously, uh, read in major sections at a time. Uh, So read the entire book first. And then what else would you do under step one? Do a little bit of... Digging on who the audience is and what, where they're at, and yeah, and when it was written and all the, all those things, right? So this was written during the mid sixteen or sixties, I should say, within the first century, obviously, right? Uh, during the mid sixties A.D., just uh, before severe persecution under uh, Emperor Emperor Nero, uh, they were facing the temptation, right? The Hebrews were facing the temptation to reject Christianity and return to Judaism uh, for an easier life. So these were Jews uh, that were converted to Christianity, that were Christians. Um, And many of them were facing persecution for their new faith, and they were being tempted to 
uh, fall back to Judaism. Uh, so that's broadly the context of what's happening here, right? Uh, and then look at the literary context. So uh, we're not obviously spending a whole lot of time on setting up the historical context, but we're going with that general overview. Um, but let's read the text, verses 1 through 2, and let's talk a little bit more about the literary context. So does someone want to read verses 1 through 2 for us of chapter 12? Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay, lay also, let's also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run them with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. All right. Um, so... With the literary context, what's one of the very first things that you notice in these two verses? You're looking at the words, the syntax, the sentence structures. Um, also depends a little bit on the English uh, translation you're using. Um, this is an old translation. It says there, that we are surrounded by so great cloud witnesses. Does that mean angels and God and sky that mean on the earth? Well, to answer that question, right, we need to look at the surrounding context. So, uh, but before that, I wanted to hone in on the very first word, right, of verse 1 of chapter 12. Therefore, right? So, Pastor Jason has taught us this many times. When you see therefore, you need to see why it's therefore, what it's there for. Uh, and with that, I mean, it's, it connects it really well with chapter 11 right before uh, so based on everything that was said in chapter 11 and preceding, right? Therefore, since we have been surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, uh, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and so on and so on. So what is chapter 11 all about? That's a hall of faith. Hall of faith, right? Chapter 11 is known as a hall of faith. Why is it known as a hall of faith? What is a hall of faith? Yes. Because they give you all the examples of faithful people in the Old Testament. Yeah, so it gives a lot of great examples of faithful men and women in the Old Testament. Right? I mean, if you just go through this, I mean, verse 1 of chapter 11 it explains what faith is. Right? I mean, if you need a definition, the closest thing to a definition of faith in Scripture, I would say, is in verse 1 of chapter 11 the book of Hebrews, and then it says, by faith, Abel, by faith, Enoch, by faith, Noah, by faith, Abraham, by faith, Sarah, by faith, Isaac, by faith, Jacob, and it just continues, right? And so that's why it's called the great, uh, the hall of faith um, of so many great examples of all of those who have gone before this original audience Right, these Jews that became Christians that, had faith, that have now faith in Jesus Christ who are being tempted to just go back to Judaism to have an easier way of life because things are getting hard. Right? And so the author of Hebrews is showing that there has been many faithful people who have gone before them. So therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, right? pause there, right? answer Nancy's question, who are these cloud of witnesses? It's all of those who have gone before us. Specifically, if you want specific examples, look at all these men and women that are listed in chapter 11. Right? Um, so therefore, since we are surrounded by Abel, by Enoch, by Noah, by Abraham, by Sarah, by Isaac, by Jacob, by Joseph, by Rahab, by Gideon, by, and it continues, right? Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. It's continuing the theme of faith, right? Uh, he is uh, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that has set before him endured the cross despising the shame, 
and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. All right, so we're looking at the text before, right, that helps set the literary context in what this passage is talking about. And as we learned last week, right, it's good to see what comes afterwards as well. I mean, and you do this, obviously, when you read the entire book and it's in one setting, you can see how this works together. Um, but what comes right after this text in verses uh, 3 through 11 uh, talks about uh, this struggle, right, and, and, and discipline. So does someone want to read verses uh, 3 through 11 of chapter 12? For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we, much, shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For he disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So I mean, it, it continues to shed a little bit more understanding for us uh, for verses 1 through 2. Right? So we have uh, Jews who became Christians who are struggling, going through persecution, who are struggling to endure through it. Um, who are being tested immensely for their faith, wanting to, or being tempted to fall back and reject the faith, right? And so Paul's showing them a good example of faithful men and women who have gone before them as examples, right? And it says, endure till the end. Run the race well. And then it goes further and gives an analogy of how a son and a, with a son and a father, and how a father disciplines um, to, for his benefits, right? Um, we see verse 7, it says, for it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. And so therefore, it makes it a lot more meaningful, right? And it makes it a lot more special for those um, struggling through it. Um, all right, so we talked a lot about uh, about the surrounding context to help us understand verses one through two. Again, it says, therefore, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that has was set before him, endured the cross. So he endured as well, right? Um, endured the cross, despising the shame that is seated at the right hand of the, th- uh, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. All right, so the next part I know she says, summarize the meaning for the biblical audience. So we're not necessarily trying to cross the bridge yet, but just summarize the meaning uh, for what you what you believe uh, it is for the original audience specifically. So what, what are some things we could say that you could write down in this section? Keep the faith keep and the, keep going. Keep the faith, keep going. Right? We want to be specific and we'll make it more general for us to apply for us today. Um, but you could write something like this down. It says, the author, I wrote down, the author of Hebrews uses the image of a long-distance race, right? We see that here, uh, of a long-distance race to challenge his audience, the original audience, to persevere, uh, to 
to preserve in their commitments to Christ in spite of their struggles, the opposition. Rather than drifting away from Christ and reverting back to Judaism, right, specific to them, reverting back to Judaism for them, they need to run the race with endurance. For inspiration and encouragement, they should consider the many faithful saints who have already endured in faith. Right? Referring to chapter 11. Uh, they are urged especially to focus on Jesus, the ultimate example of perseverance under pressure. Right? You see Jesus as an example of perseverance under pressure because it refers to him uh, who took on the cross. Uh, so they are encouraged to, especially to focus on Jesus rather than on the immediate circumstance of difficulty. Right? So that's summarizing what the text meant um, to the original audience, understanding their context and everything that's happening there. All right, step two. What are the differences between the biblical audience and us? What is similar? We're not Jews, okay. Yeah. I'm not really getting burned for my beliefs either. You're not, be, you're not being burned for your beliefs, yeah. I think that we are facing a lot of times now challenges to the truth of the Bible. Mm. So there are similar similarities, right? Maybe not to the extent of maybe what they were, and I think that's pulling out what Chris was saying, but we could still apply it to an extent as well as what you're pulling out or pointing out, Nancy. Um, so yeah, I think you guys came up with the differences. Again, I don't think there are many differences most of the time when it comes to New Testament letters. There are a lot more differences when it comes to Old Testament passages. It's before Christ. It's a whole different covenant, right? They're trying to follow the law. We, we don't do that, right? Um, it was a lot different. And so step two would be a lot more of a process if you're doing these five steps with an Old Testament passage. But I think you guys listed some of the good differences um, for this one that we need to make note of. Um, we're not Jewish, but then more specifically as well, for applying purposes, many of us are not facing the same level of persecution as what they were. What about step three? What are the theological principles in this text uh, that we can pull out? I think Lonnie was kind of already going there by making his statement broad in uh, the first step. Um, um, when, I, when I look at it, that, you know, look the passage, looking at it in order with verse 1, all of us experience struggle of some kind, and all of us have, have sinned. I mean, the Bible clearly lays that out. Everybody has sinned. Um, but we also have Jesus who has, you know, it says the author and perfecter of our faith. I mean, that in itself is a biblical principle and truth. And so despite our struggles and despite our Despite the sin, we have Jesus to look to um, because, I mean, it really kind of lays it out almost, you know, verbatim. He endured the cross for us. Um, yeah. 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 And it, it, the text is showing us specifically how to run the race, how to endure. Uh, through these tr struggles and uh, persecutions you may be facing. And it lists three things within the text I see. And what you're pointing out, Elliot, here is uh, looking to Christ because he is the founder and perfecter of our faith is one of the ways that we endure through it, right? Um, the first way, it says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. First step, right? Put off those things. Uh, lay aside, throw off these things that are weighing us down, our sins. Second step, 
and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, right? And, you, and, then, and looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Um, and we do this not alone, right? There's many who have gone before us who have done this, that we have great examples of, but ultimately we have the perfect example as well, which is Christ, uh, who has done this, who en- endured the cross, the greatest uh, persecution, right, that someone could have gone through, taking the sins upon of the world upon himself. So there are several things you could write down. Like the main idea, if you're writing a sermon on this text, uh, the main idea could be the Christian life, remember you want to make it broad, um, not super specific based on culture, or you want to make it timeless. Uh, the Christian life is like a difficult long-distance race which requires both effort and endurance. Or you could say something like, the saints who have gone before supply us with valuable examples of endurance. We should look to them for inspiration and encouragement. Or you could say something like, to run the race successfully, we need to reject things in life um, that hinder, uh, such as the sin, while looking to Christ who is the perfect uh, founder and perfecter of our faith. So there's several different ways you could word it, right? Um, to pull out the main theological principle. Um, and you could, if you want, focus on one specific section, part of a verse. That's fine if you want to focus in on that. But if you want to uh, try to look at the two verses as a whole, uh, try to pull all of the themes, everything that's being said um, in the two verses together and see what the t- main idea of the two verses are, right? Um, so let's look at four. So let's say we're going with, as an example, for just for this exercise, as an example, we could go with the Christian life is like a difficult, long-distance race which requires both effort and endurance. And we see the endurance comes by looking to Christ, all those things, but we don't necessarily need to get into those very specifics. Um, so based on that theological principle, the Christian life is like a long-distance race which requires both effort and endurance. Step four, does this theological principle fit with the rest of the Bible? Um, I mean, obviously, you don't want to move on if the answer is no. You want to reword it, make sure it's uh, faithful to the rest of Scripture. So hopefully not. Does the theological principle fit with the rest of Scripture? I mean, hopefully, yes, it should. And then finally, step five, how should individual Christians today live out the theological principle or principles based on how you wrote it. Um, so if we're going with, for example, the Christian life is like a long-distance race which requires both effort and endurance. Uh, remember, if you look back on step five, what we talked about, uh, we need to identify the key elements that are present in the intersection between the principle and the situation. So we need to also obviously identify situations to apply it to. So key elements for this would be runners are Christians and the race is life itself, right? Um, the key element, uh, the race is difficult, difficult situations, and we are tempted to take an easier route or even quit, right? This is what the uh, Jews who were converted to Christianity were tempted to do. Uh, and then also key element could be running a successful race requires both effort and endurance. Um, so what we want to do when we make an application is be very specific, give a specific situation and how you are going to apply this. Um, so when going through, put in whatever specific situation you want to. Right, when going through um, persecution at work, or I mean, it, it could be a variety of different ways, right? When going through any type of 
difficult situation that could be potentially considered persecution or uh, a hard, difficult time because of your faith, right? Whenever you go through that, lay it out specifically, we, we are to keep running by keeping our eyes on Christ, right? That's what the text says. If we feel exhausted and stressed to, um, to a breaking point, the race is not a sprint but a marathon. To endure through the situation, whatever you put in there, is to win, right? The passage is showing that to endure through it is the point. Um, because as we read later in chapter 12, God... This in, in like not necessarily persecution, but a struggle. Like if I were to talk to Robin about um, like the difficulty she's having at school. Sure. Would it be wrong for me to be like, you gotta run your race. You got like you've got a cloud of witnesses behind you who are cheering you on. Like, look at Jesus. He's the prize. He's the finish line. Is that using it incorrectly then? Well, I think chapter eleven allows us allows us to make it broader. Um, because I think the context of the Jews, Christian Jews during the time that this was written to, right, their specific situation that they were going through persecution. Um, but what does the author of Hebrews do? Does what does he do? He gives an example of many people in chapter eleven as examples of how they did great things by faith. Uh, and so therefore, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, so let us press on. But when you look at the examples and situations of some of these people in chapter 11, I think that then allows us to apply that principle more broadly. Uh, Abraham, right? It wasn't necessarily specific persecution from a group of people pressing on him. It was different testings that God did um, so verse 8 of chapter 11 says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place uh, that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out, not knowing uh, where he was going. Right? So that was, a, that was a testing, that was a struggle there, but it wasn't necessarily him being persecuted by others surrounding him. By faith he, was, he went to live in the land of promise, in the foreign land, living in tents, with Isaac and Jacob. And uh, so I think because the text in chapter 11 makes it broader, you could apply it like that. Uh, but again, that's a, the text defining that. Um, if that wasn't there, I would want to just apply it for persecution. You know? So it's allowing the text to, I, to determine how it's applied. Persecution, but then it goes into the father, you know, disciplining the child. And, yeah. and like Sunday, you know, he said discipline could be potty training, you know. Yeah. It's not necessarily persecution. It sucks for the toddler. <laughs> it sucks yeah. for the mom. Yeah. Yeah. But then also, discipline can sometimes, uh, in, in a sense, take the form of persecution. Well, God allows us to go through difficult situations in persecution to shape us and form us. Um, and not discipline as in you're getting what you deserve because of this specific sin, but it's shaping you and forming you to be conformed to the image of Christ, right? And so in that sense, it could also be discipline. Um, but I mean, you're right. So based on the text, we have to determine how we can, how broad or narrow we should apply these specific applications. So. All right, so I challenge you, if you look back at the reflection for the week, take Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 through 18, so not that many passages, or verses, I should say, through the five steps of the interpretive journey. So, uh, try to go through that and uh, specifically go through the five steps. I mean, you don't, obviously, for every single time you prepare a lesson or do a Bible reading, Bible study to go through these five steps specifically, but I think, I think it's helpful 
um, just to make sure you are um, pulling the meaning out of the text, right? Making sure you're uh, looking at the context um, and just doing the best you can to faithfully uh, divide the word of truth. So, and then also preparation. It's not next week. Uh, next time we meet is to watch, not read. So that's kind of better. Uh, two uh, videos on the Book of Acts. So, final questions or comments before we end. I don't know how the time went by so fast. All right, I'll close this out in in prayer. Lord, we love you, and we thank you again for this opportunity we have to look into your word, Lord, and uh, to study it. I pray, Lord, that we just uh, continue to practice, 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 Lord, uh, in in interpreting your word. Lord, we don't want to uh, always just overcomplicate this, um, this exercise, Lord, but we also don't want to just come about it as um, it's no big deal, Lord. Looking at your word is a big deal, and you have revealed yourself to us in it, Lord, and we want to know you properly, Lord, and truly, and we want to uh, uh, be good students of your word, Lord, so that we may know you uh, faithfully, Lord. We love you, and I pray these things in your name. Amen.